Blog Talk Radio.
Mamba Mubiai, Mulubawaji Tanta. Wawaka Yeme, Mwena Menshi. of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is uh, Sunday, uh, August the 29th, uh, 2021. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again uh, to another edition of our program. Later on, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the rapidly approaching deadline for the United States military to withdraw uh, from the Central Asian state of Afghanistan. Ethiopian analysts are accusing uh, Washington of attempting to stage a, quote, Libya-type, unquote, intervention in the Horn of Africa state. The African Union mission to Somalia, Amazon, is making plans to remain in the country until 2027. And the governments of Rwanda and Lesotho have signed an agreement for cooperation within the police services. In the second hour, we conclude our month-long focus on Black August with a re-examination of the United States government's counterintelligence program against the African-American liberation movement. Finally, we review a myriad of issues and the international community. 
These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program, so stay tuned. We're going to take a musical interlude uh, in Congo, Brazzaville, with the orchestra Sile Bichu. Let's listen in. Na 
Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, music from the Republic of Congo, uh, Brazzaville, uh, in uh, West uh, Africa, uh, Central West Africa, and of course, uh, that was the band Orchestra Sili Bichu, uh, some of the classic uh, music from um, Congo, Brazzaville. And uh, right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment of our program, and our lead story deals with the ongoing calamitous and disastrous uh, military withdrawal by the United States uh, from the Central Asian state of Afghanistan. And uh, according to an article that was published uh, earlier today in Press TV, it says a loud blast has been heard in the Afghan capital of Kabul, near the city's uh, international airport, uh, just hours after U.S. officials warned of the possibility of a terror attack in the war-torn country's capital city. According to early reports, a security official from the recently deposed Afghan government told the Asian France press uh, that the explosion was caused by a rocket that, quote, initial information shows hit a house, unquote. 
two witnesses that were also quoted uh, by Reuters as saying that the blast appeared to have been caused by a rocket that hit the area to the northern side of the airport, uh, but there was no immediate official confirmation. Video footage uh, released uh, following the explosion showed black smoke rising in the general area of the Kabul airport. Uh, Further details as well as reports on possible damage and casualties were not immediately available. The Pentagon has said that the U.S. military strike killed two, quote, high-profile, unquote, Daesh targets and injured another, describing the two targets as, quote, planners and facilitators, unquote. A few hours later, an American military official said the explosion was caused by a U.S. drone strike carried out against a vehicle threatening the Kabul airport that had been linked uh, to the regional branch of the Daesh Takfiri terrorist group. That's according to the Asian France Press. Quote, uh, U.S. military forces conducted a self-defense unmanned over-the-horizon airstrike today on a vehicle in Kabul, eliminating an imminent ISIS-K threat uh, to Hamid Karzai International Airport, and that's according to Bill Urban, a spokesman for the United States Central Command, uh, using uh, the name of the Afghanistan branch of Daesh terror outfit. He went on to say that, quote, significant secondary explosions from the vehicle indicated the presence of a substantial amount of explosive material. He said, adding that there were no indications at this time of uh, civilian casualties. The explosion uh, comes a day after the U.S. Embassy in Afghanistan warned of a specific and credible threat uh, near Kabul airport. United States President Joe Biden also issued a similar warning uh, yesterday, saying that military commanders had told him an attack is highly likely in the next 24 to 36 hours. The situation on the ground continues to be extremely dangerous. And the threat of terrorist attacks on the airport remains high. That's according to uh, U.S. President Biden. He also said that our commanders informed me that an attack is highly likely in the next 24 to 36 hours. On Thursday, at least two explosions rattled the area outside the airport in the Afghan capital amid the precarious security situation following the Taliban takeover of the country, uh, killing scores of people as well as 13 U.S. service members. Following the attacks, Daesh's Amak news agency said on its Telegram channel that the terror group was behind the explosions. A senior Afghan health official also said 90 Afghan civilians were dead and over 100 others were wounded. And in other news, uh, the U.S. government uh, is attempting uh, to meddle in uh, the internal affairs of Ethiopia and uh, Eritrea as well. Uh, it, it says, uh, this article is by Mulatu Belalishu, uh was published early today in the Ethiopian Herald. It says that um, the U.S. Uh, has sympathy uh, to the TPLF clique, uh, which aims to destabilize the Horn of Africa and to facilitate another Libya-style intervention in Ethiopia. That's according to an Eritrean-American journalist and activist uh, who made the statement. And, of course, uh, this was published in the Gray Zone media. The activist Elias Amari uh, said that the U.S. is clearly fueling the conflict in Ethiopia with a view to destabilizing the strategic horn of Africa. 
The Biden administration is also rendering a clear diplomatic and political support for the TPLF, if not outright military support. And also Egypt, which is a major U.S. ally, is openly backing the terrorist TPLF. Now, uh, for Feltman, uh, Samantha Powers and the U.S. government at large, the TPLF is their most trusted client proxy, as Abi is asserting Ethiopia's independence. After years of subservience uh, by the enhancing by enhancing the developmental and other project performances to be self-reliant as a country, as a state, in all circles. Unfortunately, uh, Egypt and the U.S. have been carrying out a proxy war for destabilization of the region via supporting the TPLF in various, by various means. That's according to the article by Elias Amari. Elias noted that uh, all uh, Western corporate media reporting on Ethiopia's conflict have never mentioned that the TPLF initiated the war by attacking not only one military base on November the 4th, 2020, but it was a coordinated attack on multiple central government military installations. The author says, uh, where is the world uh, when a provincial military attacked the federal government? It is treason in the world under whether, whatever constitutional system and the way the Ethiopian government is tricking is a worthwhile means to bring perpetuators to justice. He further stated, uh, that the United States government and most media coverage said Ethiopia and Eritrea withdrew their forces from Tigray State without mentioning the criminal faction, continued the conflict, expanded it under more aggressive measures. The U.S. also gave a blind eye and deaf ear uh, to Amhara and Afar massacres, and over 400,000 people have been displaced from the two states because of the TPLF aggression. The Ethiopian government, after long patience and trial to peaceful end with the TPLF, commenced law enforcement operations to restore law and order following the criminal elements' attacks on the federal troops. Uh, but the U.S. stands by the side of terrorists under the guise of humanitarian aid. Noting the history of U.S. association with the TPLF, it emanated from the role the latter played uh, during the Somali invasion where the Islamic court was destroyed and warlords were brought back to power. The activists indicated that the operation made Somalia a far uh, worse place. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. And uh, in other news uh, impacting uh, the African uh, continent, uh, in the Horn of Africa nation of uh, Somalia, of course, there has been... Uh, developments uh, that have occurred uh, in relationship to whether or not the uh, current uh, forces uh, uh, from the African Union will continue to occupy the country and obviously stabilize the government in uh, Mogadishu. Now, according to the East African uh, publication, amid funding challenges, the African Union will deploy a reconfigured force of the continental body's peacekeeping outfit in Somalia for a proposed five-year period after the expiry of the current mandate at the end of this year. Now, sources familiar with the plan told the East African that so far the African Union, the federal government of Somalia, and key donors have agreed on the agenda, quote, to begin working towards determining the reconfigured force, unquote, of the African Union mission in Somalia, Amazon. The sources say the African Union is working on things like threat assessment, mission requirements, 
for both uniformed and non-combat personnel uh, to inform the reconfigured force strength and funding needs. Reconfiguration of uh, Amistam is the option the AU has chosen out of four, uh, that is, independent assessment teams or reports proposed for the future of the mission. The first option was creation of a hybrid UN-AU force, but the AU's Peace and Security Council rejected the hybrid force on the grounds that it would be an obstacle to resolving the longstanding problem of fragmented support to the mission. The third and fourth options were to deploy a regional force, the Eastern African Standby Forces, and for Amazon to exit Somalia. The AU assessments teams uh, reports say uh, the primary mandate of the reconfigured force will be to enhance the capacity of the Somali security forces to assume uh, their security responsibilities after being trained, mentored, reformed, and restructured uh, by Amazon. But Somalia's national Harun Maruf said last month that it is time uh, to phase out Amazon's involvement in Somalia after 14 years in which the force has not achieved much. Another critic says extending the mission stay more than a year will be, quote, pure catastrophe and a waste of resources, unquote. United Nations security experts and troops contributing countries concur to the threat of the militant group Al-Shabaab to overrun the capital and other regional cities once the peacekeeping forces leaves remains. In its reports to the United Nations Security Council, raises the clear danger of a vulnerable Somalia after the withdrawal of U.S. military, which has been conducting airstrikes against Al-Shabaab positions. The report also notes that force drawdown of Amazon has reduced numbers and impacted its capacity to cover Somalia's forces to contain Al-Shabaab, which, quote, counted little resistance in capturing several towns and villages previously, which have been hostile to the group. United States Africa Command, AFRICOM, has also previously issued an assessment of Al-Shabaab's threat, saying since 2006, the Al-Qaeda-linked militant group has increased its combat capability by seizing heavy weaponry, armored vehicles, explosives, small arms ammunition, and other supplies from assaults on Somali National Security Forces and Amazon forces, overrunning various African bases within the region. Al-Shabaab remains a threat to peace and security in Somalia. That's according uh, to the United States Pentagon AFRICOM assessment. But still, uh, hurting from years of frustrations uh, during uh, which troop contributing countries request to the UN to force multipliers to increase their aerial firepower and combat capability against uh, the Al-Shabaab group were not honored. The new mission promises to be a showdown between the African Union and the United Nations. And uh, with that, uh, we're going to conclude. Uh, we have one more story, of course, uh, which deals uh, with a recent agreement uh, with uh, the Central and East African state of Rwanda and uh, the Southern African state, the Kingdom of Lesotho. Uh, there's been an agreement uh, to enhance uh, cooperation uh, within the police services of both of uh, these African states. Now, of course, uh, these reports uh, have just emerged uh, recently, and, of course, they indicate that Rwanda uh, is doing more in regard to military as well as security uh, interventions in various uh, parts of Africa, including uh, southern Africa. 
as we have reported, uh, the Rwandan uh, Defense Forces have been involved in, of course, security operations in uh, northern Mozambique. And, of course, uh, that uh, will uh, conclude our program, uh, our segment of the Pan-African Journal, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. And uh, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites uh, throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. And uh, if you'd like to log on uh, to uh, the Pan-African Newswire, all you need to do is go to our website, and that's at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to uh, have access to this program, uh, the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide uh, radio broadcast. All you need to do is go uh, to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. Links from the program uh, can be shared with other potential listeners uh, through email, uh, blogs and websites, as well as social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. If you had a choice of colors, which one would you choose, my brothers? If there was no day, Which would you prefer to be right? How long have you hated your white teacher? Who told you you love your black preacher? Do you respect your brother's woman friend? And share with black folks not of kin? People must prove to the people a better day is coming for you and for me with just a little bit more education and love for our nation would make a better society now some of us would rather cuss and make a fuss than to bring about a little trust but we shall overcome, I believe, someday If you'll only listen to what I have to say And how long have you held your white teacher? Who told you you love your black preacher? Can you respect your brother's woman friend? And share with black folks, not of kin I say now people 
threat to the internal security of the United States of America. These are word by word, verbatim quotes from J. Edgar Hoover. The year of 69, every branch and office of the Black Panther Party in one way, shape, fashion, form, or another was attacked by the power structure, law enforcement agencies, and so on. And people walking around out there like walking wounded, you know. It's just like they've been in Vietnam. Victims of gun battles and sieges and, and isolation and torture and destroyed families and dead parents. But nobody knows about them and nobody really cares. And that story is one that hasn't been told yet. <laughs> of California at Los Angeles, two Black Panthers were shot to death during a black student's meeting on the campus last Friday. Two FBI informants and the United Slaves had uh, shot and killed uh, Benchy Carter and uh, John Huggins on the UCLA campus. The US organization slapped a member of Black Panther Party at the time, Elaine Brown, doing with John Huggins, so when she told him that somebody from the US organization had slapped her, he pulled his pistol out. This is when the two brothers, uh, supposedly Steiner brothers, supposedly steps out from behind the doors and opens fire and uh, kills John and, and kills Bunchy. And the FBI agent who was controlling two informants was concerned that some white students might have been shot on campus. The members of the US organization were taken from the crime scene with the FBI. The government, or whoever, Howard, Cointel, whatever, they were able to kill a party when they killed Bunchy. When they killed Bunchy, uh, they killed the party. We just didn't know it. bodyguard when he was assassinated. He was one of the major agents uh, in the Panther 21 case. They brought us all in, put us in one room. They brought Ralph White Sedan, the other undercover agent, with a sawed-off shotgun, and they brought him in with his head down like he's under arrest, took him in another room, and they brought, had Gene Robinson sitting in another office sitting down looking like he was depressed, like he was arrested. And it was down there that we realized that uh, there were three undercover agents that were actively involved in framing us for the charges for which we were arrested. After they get the conspiracy charges on you, they let the agents out the side door and they go back out in the community as nothing's wrong or they were still Panthers when they wasn't Panthers at all. They were just agents that infiltrated the Black Panther Party. Most of the Panther 21 spent two years in prison 
after a trial that lasted um, 15 months, a jury came back with a not guilty verdict in 45 minutes on all 150 counts of conspiracy. It was a colossal victory to have um, defeated the state's attempt to criminalize uh, the leadership of the Black Panther Party. Eldridge Cleaver, the Black Panther leader who fled to Cuba to avoid being returned to jail, arrived in Algeria today to attend the Pan-African Cultural Festival in Algiers. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover today asserted that of the black extremist groups, the Black Panthers represent the greatest internal threat to the nation. In his report for fiscal year 1969, Hoover said the Panthers have perpetrated numerous assaults on police and have engaged in violent confrontations throughout the country. You must murder a freedom fighter like Bobby Hutton, but you can't murder freedom fighting. And if you do, you come up with answers that don't answer explanations that don't explain. You come up with conclusions that don't conclude. Fred Hampton, who, by the way, I would, I would look at as one of the true leaders of the Panthers. Extraordinarily talented. 21 years old. Uh, articulate. Watch some of his film. Hear him speak. There was a dangerous man. He could persuade people that there was injustice. That uh, the United States ought to be changed. Black people need some peace. White people need some peace. And we are going to have to fight. We're going to have to struggle. We're going to have to struggle relentlessly to bring about some peace. Because the people that we're asking for peace, they're a bunch of megalomaniac warmongers. And they don't even understand what peace means. He was the heart and soul of the Chicago uh, chapter of the Black Panther Party. And just, a, just an awesome motivator. We ain't the oppressor, whether he be white, black, brown, or yellow. And he began to forge coalitions between various street gangs or youth organizations in, in, in Chicago. And, and by doing that and by being a charismatic leader and being uh, one who can mobilize uh, the people, particularly the youth, he became noticed by the federal government. We might not be back. I might be in jail. I might be anywhere. But when I leave, you can remember I said with the last words on my lips that I am a revolutionary and you're gonna have to keep on saying that uh the fbi never killed personally killed any panthers they always had uh local police departments do their dirty work and they began to devise a scheme that culminated in his assassination while he was asleep drugged by his security officer who was also uh, a, a police informant city police in chicago um murdered fred hampton It had happened apparently about 4 o'clock in the morning on December 4th. I didn't hear about it until 6 o'clock that night because I wasn't in town. And they popped this picture up on the screen. Actually, two pictures, one of Fred Hampton and one of Mark Clark. And uh, I was just stunned. I was staring at the screen and I realized I was crying. They shot that place up in ways you couldn't believe. His wife 
pregnant, shot up in the bed there. She survived, as did the fetus, but Fred's body was riddled. The walls of the room riddled. You can count scores of bullet holes there. He never got out of the bed. He was murdered right there. 2.30 in the morning, they claim they're serving a search warrant. Don't we know anything about human rights? You don't serve a search warrant at 2.30 in the morning. You don't come crashing in with guns blazing and kill people who sleep in their beds in the United States of America, or do you? In essence, was uh, an assassination authorized by the FBI, or sanctioned by the FBI. The criminal conspiracy unit of LAPD, their mission in life was to investigate extremist groups, primarily the Black Panthers. And the FBI had a special unit uh, called the S2 unit. They euphemistically called it their racial squad. Their focus was on the Black Panther Party. So the FBI's um, racial squad and the LAPD's uh, criminal conspiracy section worked literally hand-in-hand in, in bringing down the, the, the LA Black Panther Party and its leadership, Pratt in particular. When uh, Monty Carter and John Huggins had been assassinated, uh, Pratt became the leader of the Panthers, and now the FBI had to get rid of Pratt. Geronimo Pratt was a Vietnam veteran. He'd been a paratrooper and won many medals in Vietnam, including a Purple Heart. He trained all the Panthers in Los Angeles on how to defend the office against attack. He was the defense minister, uh, so he was clearly somebody that the FBI was out to neutralize. December 8, 1969, Los Angeles Special Weapons and Tactics. Criminal Conspiracy Section, LAPD, FBI. Black Panthers, as we all know, were destroyed as an organization through these illegal FBI operations. And uh, certainly the CIA violated the privacy and the rights of thousands upon thousands of Americans through the illegal operations which they agreed to do under Richard Helms as director. Any and everything was done to members of the Black Panther Party to destroy not only the Black Panther Party and other organizations, but to demoralize people, to discredit us in the eyes of the people, to criminalize our existence in the consciousness and mass of the people. It's physical violence and torture, per se. There's nothing modern about it, and there is nothing sophisticated or scientific about it. It is the base against which psychological warfare has its meaning. We went to interview Dr. Matulu Shakur, who had cured thousands of drug addicts with the experimental treatment of acupuncture. We found him in an underground prison. The Black Liberation Movement in 1969 lost something like 43 people were killed. And something like 785 people were arrested and put in prison. 
in any other country with the population that New African people represent, in any other country in the world, that would be considered war. We went to interview Mumia Abu-Jamal, the Peabody Award-winning journalist. We found him awaiting execution on death row. In essence, when one looks at their aims and objectives of the federal government through the FBI, by way of the COINTELPRO program, what one really sees is a war against black America, a war against um, any, uh, in the words of the final in fact, the emergence of a black messiah who could lead black America. In 1970, there were tremendous trials. The United States government began to try to sweep up all of the leftovers of the 60s into these major conspiracies. And they had the Black Panther trial, the Chicago 7 trial, the LA 17 trial, the Wilmington 10 trial, RNA 11 trial. There was just tons and tons of these types of trials. Many of our people, went to the wayside psychologically, emotionally, and physically. 15-hour shootouts, Philadelphia, New Orleans, Los Angeles, San Diego, the frame-up of hundreds of Panthers across the country are ridiculous trumped-up charges. I was arrested. I was 19 years old. We were the first Waco. The New African, New Bethel incident, when the police came in, uh, the Detroit police came in there to try to shoot up everybody in that church, men, women, and children were having a peaceful demonstration to try to kill them. They were shooting under the pills. They were shooting the little children running and crying. There's nothing to me has been more painful out of all the people I know that died in Vietnam than those comrades who died out here in the streets. There is nothing, nothing. legitimate to go out and kill as many Vietnamese as one could, uh, or Viet Cong as one could, then uh, why not kill enemies in the United States? Today, a judge set Newton free on $50,000 bond to await a new trial. Newton's last trial and manslaughter conviction were overturned by a higher court this year, so now he'll be tried again. And in the meantime, he is out on bail. He is back on the street. Before Newton got out of prison, the founder of the Black Panther Party sat and talked about his plans for the Panthers now. 
uh, I plan to uh, go on with our, our expansion and also to uh, to make even a stronger tie with the uh, struggling people of the world because they represent two-thirds of the people. J. Edgar Hoover today characterized the Black Panthers as the most dangerous and violence-prone of all the extremist groups now active in the United States. There were forces at foot trying to undermine the relationship between not only myself and the leadership of the Black Panther Party, national leadership, but between the various forces within the Black Panther Party who wanted to make the Black Panther Party more responsive and democratic and those who wanted to maintain the Black Panther Party as an extension of, of, of autocratic control of the Central Committee. The Central Committee of the Black Panther Party, when I come out of jail, I reorganize it again. Huey then was actually opposed to this. I said, no, we have to have a broader central committee. Because when I come out of jail, Huey was sitting there with him and David. He went to jail, and Elaine Brown and a couple of other people said, this is our central committee. And I said, Huey, this whole uh, supreme commander crap has got to go. And these are the private conversations I had with Huey, you know. So my point becomes, he was trying to absolutize himself. We had, we had felt that um, all the contradiction that was happening between David Heed and all the other people in the party, the central leadership and the breakdown in centralism and all of that, would be resolved when Huey came home. When Huey came out, uh, Geronimo remained a member of the Central Committee. For whatever reason, uh, Huey, uh, after he got out of jail, uh, he wanted to have the total control of the party, but the way the party was set up with the Central Committee, uh, that was uh, impossible. Uh, Geronimo, being one of the strongest uh, personalities on the Central Committee, uh, just had to be eliminated. It was around this time that Elmer Geronimo Pratt uh, was um, was captured and branded as a as a um, agent by David Hilliard and the Central Committee of the Black Panther Party on the West Coast. Of course, this was a total fabrication. Geronimo was not an agent. In fact, the, um, the individual who pointed the finger at Geronimo and declared him an agent, Melvin Cotton Smith, was himself a police informer, an agent, who was assigned to Geronimo by David Hilliard. A split apparently is open in the leadership of the Black Panther Party. On a San Francisco television talk show, Huey Newton, in the studio, talked with fugitive Aldridge Cleaver, speaking by telephone from Algeria. Cleaver said a purge of Black Panther members is tearing the party apart, blamed it on David Hilliard, and demanded the ouster of Hilliard as Panther Chief of Staff. Many of those confrontations, both on the West Coast and between the East Coast and the West Coast, happened because of the COINTELPRO program, what they call Program Brown Mail. They would write to one person and sign their letter. They would write to another person and sign each other's person's signature. And it really cracked the Black Panther Party in two by creating two factions. All of this was happening at the same time that Huey Newton was planning his itinerary to come back east. And the government used the hysteria and the paranoia around these issues to give Huey the impression that the New York Panthers were unloyal to him. They wrote to people, in my name, sign my signature. And these were crazy letters that were written by the FBI. And Jeff Ford got a letter from Chairman Fred. Of course, they thought those letters were from each other. And they, the tone of the letters were, 
um, incendiary, or you're a pawn. Uh, if I see you, I'm going to you know, shoot you. Uh, you're a coward. If you had guts, you would come down here. I mean, it, was a, it was literally an attempt by this government to incite violence. COINTELPRO was the whole cause of the split between the different factions in the party that caused the death of Sam Napier. In terms of the actual physical integrity and well-being of the Panther, Sam Napier might have been the most important person. Uh, the newspaper was the most important entity and tool uh, and institution that the Panthers had and he was in charge of the paper. The loss of Sam Napier wasn't just the loss of a person who, um, who was a paper salesman. It was like a spirit in the party, a strong, positive spirit that permeated the whole party. Uh, and uh, you lost, the, like a friend, a brother. Robert Webb was the ranking Panther on the entire East Coast. He had the rank of field marshal, which was a central committee position. It was an underground secret rank. The police knew who these people were. The police knew that they had orchestrated this conflict. And they gloated over it in their documents when they said that they could take credit for, for the murder, for Robert Webb's murder, and that they could take credit for the irreconcilable differences in splitting the Black Panther Party. When Huey Newton came to the Northeast, we in New York were responsible for his security. The government knew this through their agents and through the mail. They sent um, threats, death threats to Huey Newton, purportedly coming from us on the East Coast, saying that, uh, you know, we were faithful to Eldridge Cleaver and that when Huey came back East, we were going to kill him. And it was up at Yale University that Huey Newton uh, sort of like got extremely paranoid. I was told that I was suspended from the Black Panther Party for threatening his life. So life is very tough, and uh, a funny thing happened to all of us on the way to the grave. Huh? <laughs> Huey, David, sent me underground with Geronimo with, with no intentions of, of us being successful, but with the intentions of us eventually being killed. I think their plan was that we would be killed by the police. Uh, we would then become martyrs. They would be able to raise us as martyrs and, and go on with their own program. Uh, I followed orders, did what I was supposed to. Geronimo followed orders, did what he was supposed to. And then we end up uh, being in the middle of the split between the Black Panther Party, and they use that as a reason uh, to expel us and, and, and to uh, break with Eldridge. And at the same time that this was going on, the Panther 21 in prison were contemplating writing an open letter criticizing um, the leadership of the Black Panther Party um, around various issues. It was only two things that could happen, that if we could either do, spend the rest of go to prison or, or the cemetery. Um, and knowing that people like Twyman Myers and Robert Webb and Sam Napier and Fred Bennett and Fred Hampton had made the ultimate sacrifices, that meant that we could either back up and, and give up and let them win or we could struggle against it. On one end we had the, the um, Huey people who were out to do us in, and on the other side we had the government who was out to kill us. So we, we were in between the, the rock and the hard place. Out of that came the birth of the underground, the Black Liberation Army, the armed wing of the Black Panther Party, whose stated purpose was to start and initiate an offensive military campaign against the forces of reaction. 
blog came into being when those who did political work above ground, when they were more or less from the repressive forces, was forced underground because of their political work in the community. Then they became part of blog. So basically it was taking the war to the enemy instead of waiting the enemy to bring the war to you. And that's what the Black Liberation Army was about. The public at large has a hard time understanding how often innocent people are wrongly convicted. The Los Angeles Police Department, the DA's office, and the FBI were determined that Pratt should stay behind bars. And so they tried to find some other case to bring against him. And they finally decided on an unsolved murder case called the Tennis Court Murder that came out of Santa Monica and charged him with this on the basis of some shenanigans involving a FBI informant named Julio Butler. Julius Butler said at Pratt's trial he was not an FBI informant. We have a ton of material that clearly indicate that Butler was a, uh, an FBI informant. As an example, here we have an FBI Federal Bureau of Investigation August 19, 1969, and all the information he was giving the FBI during that interview. Of course, the FBI is going to place itself in a position of being able to deny whatever happens, just the way uh, they're denying that uh, Julius Butler is, was an informant. Butler said that he has written a letter containing information relating to an involvement of BP members in an affair that could put them in a gas chamber. I mean, they had a, an informant file. And Butler was contacted about three dozen times, but they said, well, he's not an informant. Butler said that he was expelled from the BPP in August of 1969. At Pratt's trial, he said he was not expelled, that he quit. Now, according to FBI's own records, their own telephone tap, they later realized that Geronimo Pratt was in Oakland at the time of the tennis court murder. The ballistics person uh, came in and testified that the bullet taken from the victim did not match uh, ballistically the barrel of the gun. Well, the way they, they got around that was they had Julius Butler, as part of his confession, tell the jury that not only did Pratt confess the crime to me, that he did it, but he also told me that he threw the barrel of the gun away. So that took care of that. The counterintelligence program had successfully divided the Black Panther Party into two opposing groups. And the Newton group had barred any members of its group from having anything to do speaking on the phone, talking to, and definitely not testifying in trial of the other group. Geronimo Pratt had been expelled. He was in the other group. And so almost all the people who had attended these staff meetings in which she was present, in which I was present, were unable, upon pain of being expelled from the Panther Party, to testify. This murder in Geronimo's case clearly was not Geronimo. Then those government agents need to be brought to justice. And that's, that's, uh, that's the responsibility of people in this country at this point in time. The FBI is considering an attempt to try to smash the Black Panther Party. They stopped actually attacking us. Didn't mean they didn't have no covert crap going on. Infiltration of cocaine into the Black Panther Party, its leadership, 
uh, Huey P. Newton being the main target. And every once in a while I say, I say, why are you snorting this cocaine? This ain't the thing. Now, I don't say this because I'm trying to destroy Huey's character. What I'm trying to tell people is you have to learn to know the whole truth. I had a um, clear impression that uh, chemical warfare would be utilized against the Black Panther Party. We had taken a position in our rules against anyone shooting heroin and narcotics found with the immediate from the Black Panther Party because we essentially were anti-drug in our operations. Uh, I'd say in my analysis and reflection and research that there were mind control operations run against the Black Panther Party as well as a lot of other operations, uh, psychological warfare programs. And when I say chemical warfare, I'm talking about chemical substances like alcohol and cocaine. Okay, Altra was what you might call a research program by the CIA to determine if psychotropic drugs, mind-altering drugs, uh, might be used um, for intelligence purposes, either for chemical warfare, for um, the interrogation of intelligence assets, or the neutralization of, of uh, targets. See, yes, remember, if you read some of the Contact Pro documents, they had a psychological profile on Huey, on me, on Eldridge. They knew they could use Huey, and they knew that they could trick Eldridge into a certain level of thinking. So, what, I mean, they had developed this over a period of time. Now, here we got a situation where you got some party members that talked to me that they believe Huey got duped in to on a small-scale level, methodologically destroying the party. And uh, the party basically went from a people's organization to U.S. private army. That's basically what happened. It was agreed that I would run for mayor of Oakland, and then Huey insisted that Elaine Brown had to run for city council woman at large. We lose the goddamn campaign. And then I found out May, late May 1974, that Huey was trying to take over the drug trade in Oakland, California. Johnson Huey, the party is over. The committee will resolve itself into executive session. The room will be cleared and swept. Uh, no director of the National Security Agency has ever before been required by Congress to testify in open session. There is a great deal about the best intelligence service in the world that we would be pr proud to tell, to bring into perspective what we have had to say recently about the missteps or misdeeds of the past. I believe that I could go back over my experiences in the Justice Department and find some areas in which the Bureau is not fully accountable to me. Yes, Senator. William C. Sullivan, who retired as the FBI's chief investigator six years ago after falling out with J. Edgar Hoover, was killed in a deer hunting accident in New Hampshire today. Sullivan was 65. Bill Sullivan, who was the number three man in the Bureau in charge of Division 5 domestic intelligence, expressed extreme remorse to me about his role in a, suggesting an anonymous letter to um, Martin Luther King for King to commit suicide a week before he was going to be called upon to testify before the House uh, Committee on Assassinations. And he was out in a pasture near his uh, New Hampshire home, and he was mistaken, supposedly, uh, for a deer by a young man out hunting.
and uh, was killed. I understand from uh, the news media that the son was an experienced hunter, and I don't know how an experienced hunter could mistake a man who's dressed in a red plaid jacket for uh, the head of a, a deer. I mean, I have never seen a red deer, but you know, maybe they're out there somewhere. But if I could get a virtuous woman... Who's the boss? Well, um, in a human society, there aren't really any bosses, but who is the real leader and who is the uh, person who, whose uh, words uh, are most meaningful uh, to the party as a whole, there hasn't any question about it. I mean, it always, that, that Huey is that person. I had the distinct impression consistently from 1971 that Missy Lane Brown was a highly placed intelligence operative inside the Black Panther Party. I think Elaine Brown came in through Earl Anthony and uh, she followed the same course of devious type of uh, activities. So uh, I'm saying all this to say that they got involved with people and uh, caused a lot of problems, but we was aware of it. We just wasn't aware of the extent that the LAPD, the federal government with its cointail, the CIA, FBI, we wasn't aware of to the extent that these people were involved. She acknowledges in her own words, in her book, Taste of Power, that in fact she had been educated, groomed, taught at the hands of a longtime Central Intelligence Agency operative, J. Richard Kennedy, who anyone can find out about in David Garrow's book, the FBI and Dr. Martin Luther King. So many party members literally have told me they believe this, that this woman was connected some kind of way and got step by step, piece by piece, got Huey hooked over into some notion that he could get more money behind the scene if he step by step methodologically the Black Panther Party. We've always wanted to represent the will of the people. They're not interested in socialism at this time because they believe that they can get their just desserts in this capitalist system. When, they, when the people democratically want to change in system uh, to a socialist system, then the party will be uh, the first to have solidarity. John Stockwell, former station chief of the CIA in Angola, he said, well, I want to say this to you very clear. The Huey P. Newton that people see today is a direct result of operations run by the Central Intelligence Agency to ensure that he would turn out the way that he is. Some people have a, um, uh, a distorted view of me, and it gives me very much trouble. It's, it adds to the sort of timid personality that I already have. It makes me uh, uncomfortable uh, because I know that I can't give them all of those things that their idol is supposed to. And uh, I don't want to appear to them a fake, but I would just like to tell them that, uh, that uh, you know, I'm just another regular human being. P. Newton was never the same. 
eventually became Dr. Huey P. Newton, Ph.D. He eventually became a crackhead, and he eventually was assassinated in Oakland in 1989. In the course of our journey, we discovered that certain individuals involved in the demise of the Black Panther Party were also the same individuals who were involved in the demise of the American Indian Movement. It uh, began in 1973 after the church committee hearings when they proclaimed that they were never going to execute covert operations against dissenting organizations. Yet, at the very time they were conducting such an operation against the American Indian Movement, a program directed towards the American Indian Movement very similar to the program directed against the Black Panther Party. The same bag of tricks in each case. You have a very concerted disinformation campaign. You have the insertion of infiltrators and the development of informants. Uh, the use of the infiltrators as provocateurs, attempting to convert bona fide activists into provocateurs or disruptive elements within their own organization. They literally would unleash death squads to make sure that the people who were living on the $1,200 a year in the tar paper shack would continue to live on the $1,200 in the tar paper shack. One of the personnel who were involved in persecuting and later framing Geronimo Pratt was also involved in the um, fabrication of evidence to convict Leonard Peltier. This was uh, an FBI agent by the name of Richard W. Held. Well, Richard the Elder, which is Richard G. Held, was basically one of the architects of COINTELPRO. Strangely enough, both the father and son were involved in the operation on Pine Ridge, which uh, led to the uh, frame-up of Leonard Peltier on murder charges. Basically, the paramilitary operations of 250 to 300 FBI agents, SWAT personnel on the reservation for about a three-month period of time to once and for all break the back of the American Indian movement. Armored personnel carriers with heavy machine guns, M-16s wearing camouflage uniforms, um, overflights by uh, Phantom F-4 reconnaissance jets and Huey helicopters, and uh, remote sensing devices. It was very much like what was deployed in Vietnam at that time. When the people went into Wounded Knee, there were chiefs and elders and some of the American Indian Movement members. These were the Ogallala people. They didn't have any weapons. They went in there peacefully. They were surrounded with uh, machine guns, armored super, uh, personnel carriers, uh, so the people picked up arms. And, you know, there were no uh, comparison what the government had. We shot back. It was uh, self-defense. The government spent nearly a billion dollars in the military operation on Pine Ridge. And that's a billion 1975 uh, or 1973 dollars. That's probably more than all the money invested in social programs on that reservation from 1870 onward. A people's movement to control the resources and land on the reservations happened to coincide with uh, the energy crisis in the Black Hills. There were at least a dozen large multinational corporations, energy corporations involved. And the government purports to represent the people, but it really represents vested economic interests. The movements that are working for positive social change threaten the interests of uh, the transnational corporations, and the government is essentially an instrument of corporate policy. 
Chair, leader of AIM, the American Indian Movement, had been in jail for 20 years. We finally got permission to interview him. Three days after we saw him at Leavenworth, he was moved. No one knew where to. Leonard Peltier is a prisoner of the longest war in history of the United States. That's the war against the indigenous people of the United States. And he didn't shoot anybody, he didn't kill anybody, yet he was convicted because two FBI agents had been killed and somebody had to pay. The question then becomes what is he in that cage for? And the answer is to serve as an example. An example of the arbitrary ability of the government of the United States to repress the legitimate aspirations for liberation of native people, all native people. He serves that purpose. So long as he's there, even though it's known that he's not guilty of the specific offense for which he was convicted. He's been sentenced to two life sentences. But finally they admitted in the last um, argument of the case in November of 1992 and but they didn't know who shot the two FBI agents. They said it several times in different ways without any ambiguity. We don't know who killed the agents. We don't know who fired the fatal shots. <laughs> and yet here's Leonard Peltier serving these sentences. We're addressing President Clinton to give clemency to Leonard Peltier in the name of simple justice. Now. has its uh, contingency plans for putting down civil disturbance in the United States. Uh, they had these programs in the 1960s called Cable Splicer and Garden Plot for uh, entering onto the scene in the event of civil disturbance in the United States. Uh, these activities continued on into the uh, 1980s, uh, but uh, the main agency that became involved in the, on the civilian side was FEMA, the Federal Emergency uh, Management Agency. The FEMA has created a great deal of paranoia, probably for very good reason. Their, their whole reason for existence is to, uh, is to take control and keep things going in time of a crisis of you know, earthquake or military crisis. And in the instance of a military or political crisis, we don't know what extremes they're willing to go to. They have, they've drawn up their martial law plan. Uh, one of the things that, uh, uh, that grew out of the military contingency planning, such as uh, Cable Splicer and uh, Garden Plot, was the military assistance to the police forces in organizing these and training these SWAT uh, 
squads. These are, in fact, outright militarized um, uh, police units, uh, even though they are civilian. And the United States military, the Army particularly, had uh, much to do with the establishment of these uh, units uh, through the 1960s and into the 70s. Uh, now, I think all the way across the country, there are SWAT units everywhere. And uh, they started out in places like Chicago, I believe, and Los Angeles. But uh, they were done with the help of the U.S. military. Well, Rex 84 was a plan to drop to to collect dissidents around the country who might be involved in violent activity and throw them basically in detainment camps. Some people call them concentration camps. They had, I believe, something like 17 military installations selected in the United States where they would house up to, I believe, something like 150,000 or 250,000 people in the event that the, uh, the streets turned to chaos uh, if Reagan had invaded Central America in the early 1980s. So, uh, despite uh, what the director of FBI, uh, the FBI may be uh, saying uh, currently, uh, you can assume that they're still conducting covert operations. They were going to round up every dissident and every person who took to the street, plus a lot of foreigners, uh, at the same time, because they did not want to have the situation develop as it had against Johnson and Nixon uh, over the Vietnam War. So in the early 80s, Reagan said uh, all he had to yeah, it was all prepared, the statement uh, declaring martial law, suspending the Constitution, and then they could go out and take everybody over to these uh, military reservations, the equivalent of concentration camps, and just hold them there until uh, what he wanted to do was done. The government is definitely shifting um, intelligence resources um, to the private sector. And one of the reasons for this is to escape um, uh, public scrutiny under a law such as the Freedom of Information Act. Freedom of Information Act only applies to government agencies. You have to imagine technology 20, 30 years in advance of, of what we're using today all that is classified, and it's classified for a very good reason, because it's being put to criminal uses. Bugging and interception of private communication, uh, the, the disappearance of privacy, you might say. Um, what's going on now is that there are large private corporate databases accumulated uh, that accumulate information on uh, individuals, track their activities, track their uh, economic activities, their uh, these corporations would call themselves uh, credit corporations or um, whatever, but they're essentially intelligence operations. Please listen, my brother, and my sister, too. Although these lines may not apply to you, we need less killing, less killing, more chilling. Nigga, reach the pinnacle, my mind is willing. Let's drink and more thinking what the hell is shopping. Our minds, body, spirit, what the hell is shopping. I mean, you can just what the hell is shopping. We can live a little better, I do profess. You see the soul, you need to do the bottle, bottle to the joint. This is our minimal effect, this is getting my point. The joint, to the coat, to the coat, to the door. And in the way, the way can be the dead or broke. If the all-in-the-weapon weapon is a major subsidy, we will use it. It is worth it's worth fifty million dollars this year if, if that's what it costs to buy a three million dollar crop. If it'll do the job. Now it may be there be social problems and the political problems and the rest and they're embarrassing that won't do the job. My guess is a fifty million dollars wouldn't do it, but it is worth it to this country. If that will do the job, pay fifty million dollars. How it is that the United States, with all its military services, the Coast Guard, the CIA, the FBI, the DEA, 
and cooperating agencies, including local police departments, how they are not able to suppress the drug trade in the United States, how they cannot seal the borders and stop these shipments coming in, and then the whole distribution system. The nature of the drug use and the availability of drugs began to change as the Vietnam War went bad. Specifically, there was a shift um, from the availability of relatively innocuous drugs like marijuana and hashish on the street to um, those drugs becoming relatively scarce due to federal drug programs and they're um, appearing instead a large quantity of a very pure, very cheap heroin. DEA, FBI, CIA, uh, military, they're all into this um, international narcotics uh, trafficking. Uh, so uh, it doesn't mean that any particular target is only the, the um, area of one intelligence agency because there are all kinds of interagency uh, working groups in which they uh, coordinate their activities directed toward a single target. The drug trade always supports the government's internal political agenda. It has never not supported the government's internal political agenda. For example, the phenomenon that we saw with the Nicaragua situation, with the, which we call the uh, Iran-Contra affair, Iran had less to do with the Iran-Contra affair, in our opinion, than Colombia. Because it was the Colombian drug pushers which opened up avenues for finance that the United States government could not get legally from the Congress. Some of the Hmong tribes people were involved in the production of poppies. And under the CIA, the production greatly increased and the revenues from the sale of those drugs which were flown out by CIA proprietary airlines were used to further finance covert operations by the CIA. So, what the United States government did is to get, was to get the ready cash through Elliot Abrams that allowed drugs, cocaine, to come into these poor communities all over the country as a means to then serve the secondary agenda, which is to sedate and control and criminalize as many of those black and Latin people that they can. One of the effects is to take totally out of the political picture a whole generation or two of young black males who either get involved in the drug trade and end up in prison or who get involved in consumption and do not get involved in politics. It's the state that builds the archipelago of prisons. It's the state that invents a rhetoric of three strikes and you're out. It's the state that invents a vocabulary that is soaked in crime which is meant to describe the lives of young people. Adolescence, basically. I have spent 19 years in prison in the United States for my political beliefs. You 
was a symbol that helped sustain me and other African-American political prisoners. We love you and we will not give up the fight. 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 I think we've had uh, political prisoners in the United States for a very long time. Uh, on an official level, they would not uh, admit this. Of course there are political prisoners in the United States, even if the U.S. government will never admit to them. Political prisoners are the heartbeat of the struggle. Reminders of what the struggle is really about. They have been behind the wall now 15, 20, and going on 25 years. They must not be forgotten. So while I'm sitting here in prison today with 115 witnesses, 532 exhibits, electronic surveillance, electronic eavesdropping, no fingerprints, no blood, no weapon, no words, nothing ever said against me. But I'm convicted. To this day, at least 800 pages of COVID-Telegram and ADEX or agitator index files have been released to my lawyers in my name. Um, of course, thousands have not been. They're still classified. Uh, we believe that the Congressional Black Caucus should have a hearing to determine the effect of COINTELPRO on the new African independence movement, the Black Liberation Movement, like they did to the left. That the parties responsible must admit their wrong in those attacks and violations of those people's constitutional rights. It will then set a tone of reconciliation. stone or a grain of sand as we are each individuals if we change ourselves if we do one small thing it's much better than uh, people trying to do big things and for their self-aggrandizement No matter how much power has surged through totalitarian, through empires, rulers and conquerors, whether they be governments or individuals or dictators or despots or tyrants, history has always shown that the human spirit will always prevail. We do not exist as individuals. All of us have a mother and a father. So we come from a collectivity. 
of these two beings. We cannot ignore that and say, well, I am. Um, there is no I am. There is only we are. We are collective. All of us breathe the same air. Um, we share the same sunlight. Um, the feelings that I have in my heart are feelings that you have in your heart. We share spiritual vibrations. Love is natural. Hate is unnatural. Hate breeds hate. So what you know, but I have never known where you have overcome hate with hate, but you can overcome hate with love and respect. I'll just say it in the words of Barb Molly, stand up for your rights. Don't let anybody tell you what you can and you cannot do. You can organize, you can educate, you can make a difference. We have to learn how to sit down and talk with each other first. Until we can sit down and talk, speak with each other, we sit down as, as men and women, uh, sit across from each other and break bre bread. And to learn that we're, we're human beings, I don't care you know, how, how low uh, you are uh, considered a, a, a in poverty or what national, nationality or, or how rich you are. Uh, until we can learn to sit down with each other and discuss the problems, uh, we're not going to uh, be able to accomplish that. Revolution is, first of all, change, personal change, personal transformation. Revolution is not a word to be afraid of because revolution is ultimately the most natural thing in the universe. Revolution is speaking truth to power. It is people recognizing their historical identity and their future of duty and necessity to transform this reality into a better reality. Um, I just want to be sure that uh, everyone knows that I still have the flying ability, that I'll do what I can to be as productive from here as I can, that I have legal cases that will put these issues in the public record and we will continue to uh, uh, share that with whoever, and that the international community should know that the new African independent struggle and the struggle for justice is live and well. It's dormant. But here comes the wind. Free Maria. At the end of this journey, let us look inside our hearts with forgiveness, remembering not only the past and all those whose lives were sacrificed to violence, but let us also examine how we are going to survive together as humanity into the future with peace and justice for all.
Welcome back. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, August the 29th, uh, 2021. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, to another edition, this special edition of our program. And uh, that uh, was an audio documentary uh, focusing on the counterintelligence program and its impact on the basically the um, vast uh, portion of the documentary dealt with the history of the Black Panther Party. But it also uh, examined uh, the American Indian Movement as well as the uh, so-called war on drugs of the uh, 1980s. And um, we'll take a brief break, and we'll be back with our concluding segment.
is CGTN, China Global Television Network. Evacuations are coming to a close in Afghanistan. We speak to one citizen who's fled Kabul. The UN says more than 82 million people have been forcibly displaced worldwide. And Egypt rolls out locally produced Vaxera Sinovac vaccine. Welcome to Africa Live on CGTN with me, Beatrice Marshall in Nairobi. Also coming up on the program. In business news, Ethiopia's innovations and online services support $6 billion worth of trade. And in your sports, former Cameroon triple jump champion Fonsuam Bango aims to unearth a future sporting talent. We begin in Afghanistan where the Taliban is reportedly waiting for the final nod to secure full control over Kabul's airport. The U.S. has begun pulling out its troops just days before Tuesday's deadline for foreign forces to leave the country. The U.K., France and Germany have wrapped up their evacuations. France and the U.K. say they will propose a U.N.-controlled safe zone in Kabul at an emergency U.N. meeting Monday to allow humanitarian operations to continue. Meanwhile, U.S. President Joe Biden has warned of another possible terrorist attack on the airport after the Pentagon killed two high-profile ISIS-K targets in a drone strike. This was in response to Thursday's bombing at the airport that killed 170 people, including 13 U.S. service members. Earlier, we spoke to Siyal Yousafi, a presenter for Shamshad Television in Kabul, on what the security situation at the airport looks like now. The spokesman of uh, Taliban, Zabiullah Mujahid, also confirmed uh, to us that uh, the three gates are... Uh, which were uh, with Americans, uh, they were hand, 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 hand over to uh, Taliban. And now the Taliban are uh, the responsible of uh, the security situation in the uh, Kabul airport. They confirm and they assure us that uh, the security will be uh, very good in the uh, airport. And uh, we will see what will happen in the uh, next few days. Uh, are they able or their capacities uh, that much that they will, uh, uh, they will assure us and that uh, they will uh, uh, secure the airport. We don't know now that uh, we will uh, wait for their uh, uh, confirmation and uh, uh, the uh, Zabiullah Mujahid, the spokesman of uh, Taliban, confirmed uh, and assured, but uh, we don't know that uh, they will uh, secure the airport or not. Because there are uh, rumors and there are uh, reports that uh, uh, the IS, uh, ISS are, are planning to uh, attack on uh, Kabul airport again in a few hours or a few days. Uh, but uh, the spokesman also uh, confirmed that, assured that uh, they were ready to uh, respond to any uh, attack by any group and uh, they will defeat uh, the, this uh, attack and they will secure the airport. Well, the August 31st deadline is approaching for U.S. troops to leave Afghanistan.
polls show many people in the U.S. disapprove of President Joe Biden's handling of the withdrawal. Sabemuth has more. Most polls in the U.S. do say that the most Americans support the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. But many polls are showing that most people are not approving of the way President Joe Biden has handled the withdrawal. A number of polls have shown around 25 percent say he's doing a good job in this term of evacuating the people from Afghanistan. Now, the media has really been ferocious in their attacks uh, here in the U.S. on Biden. They've questioned much of his handling. And this really, I think it's fair to say, is his first major crisis where he's facing criticism from really across the board. Now, interestingly, a number of soldiers who served in Afghanistan have also been vocal in their criticism of the president and the Department of Defense, the military's handling of this evacuation. They've said it's inconceivable that the military didn't have a better plan to get not only Americans, but also those Afghan allies out of the country. One Marine lieutenant colonel blasted Biden's actions in Afghanistan, said he was prepared to uh, risk it all in his demand for accountability. The reason people are so upset on social media right now is not because the Marine on the battlefield let someone down. People are upset because their senior leaders let them down. Did any of you throw your rank on the table and say, hey, it's a bad idea to evacuate Bagram Airfield, the strategic air barriers, before we evacuate everyone? Did anyone do that? And when you didn't think to do that, did anyone raise their hand and say, we completely messed this up? I want to say this very strongly. I have been fighting for 17 years. I am willing to throw it all away to say to my senior leaders, I demand accountability. And I think it's important to note that the Marines revealed Saturday that that, that Marine had lost his command due to posting that video. The United Arab Emirates has taken in around 8,000 Afghans who fled Kabul since the Taliban returned to power. Milad Osmani used to work as a translator for the U.S. Embassy in Kabul. He spoke to CGTN in Abu Dhabi about his escape and his thoughts on how the U.S. handled the Taliban takeover. The main problem, the main mistake, they just uh, they are calculate that was wrong, that they calculate in one month, but Kabul fall into this. Because of the rush of the people, a lot of people died there. You cannot take a pack with you. You should just uh, force yourself to go inside. Just I took my phone and one clothes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We came like this. There is no luggage because we, we couldn't make that. With luggage, you, your chance to pass the gate, zero. Milad says some of his counterparts in other embassies were told of rendezvous points and were also provided transportation inside the Kabul airport. However, he said, he and his colleagues didn't receive any such notice. He said they had to carry their work badges and push through the crowds. There is like I, thousands of people. So you can, if you're strong, you can go inside. If you're not strong, you will be under the foot. So my brother and my, uh, and, and my brother and his uh, wife, they couldn't make it to come inside. They are in Afghanistan right now, but they are childless with me. He was unconscious because of the, yeah, yeah, because of the rash, because of the uh, hot weather, and he's crying, people's crowd loud and wise, so because of that, I just gave it to the American army, and I, I go after him. Before boarding the plane for the UAE, Milad said he and his family spent four nights on airport grounds and survived on military food supplies.
all people sit uh, like in plane just 200 person if uh, space they just put 400 like everyone just sitting in their roof really exhausting I was with the kid and he's right uh, even now while night he's sleeping suddenly just waking up and crying because of the uh, uh, voice of the air, uh, airplane airport he afraid a lot Milad says he remains worried about his friends and relatives in Afghanistan he learned that three of them were killed in the suicide attacks outside Kabul airport three days ago he says hundreds of former US embassy employees including his brother are still stuck in the country Milad says he feels lucky but hopes he could help those left behind once he's able to settle down. I'm just wishing to uh, reach fast to the America and settle, rest. Then I will start work, find some jobs, work, support he, uh, my family in Afghanistan. As thousands of Afghans scramble to leave the country, they are adding to an already worrying global refugee crisis. According to the United Nations Refugee Agency, UNHCR, the number of forcibly displaced people in 2020 rose to a record high. CGTN's Daniel Arapmoj tells us more. Despite the pandemic and calls for a global ceasefire, conflict has continued to displace thousands of people from their homes. The number of people fleeing wars, violence, persecution and human rights violations rose to 82.4 million globally in 2020. At the end of 2020, there were 48 million internally displaced people. UNHCR says there are now 26.4 million refugees globally, half of whom are children. Over 4 million people are asylum seekers. More than two-thirds of all people who fled abroad came from just five countries. The Syrian refugee crisis remains the world's largest. According to UNHCR, 6.7 million people are displaced within Syria. In Venezuela, over 4 million people have left their country due to violence and insecurity. Afghan refugees represent one of the world's largest protracted refugee populations. Insecurity and violence in many parts of the country has driven 2.6 million people from their homes. Over 2.2 million people have been forced to flee South Sudan following years of conflict. About 1.1 million people who identify as members of the Rohingya ethnic group have fled their homes in western Myanmar's Rakhine state. In Africa, Uganda is the largest refugee hosting country with approximately 1.4 million refugees. Most of the refugees are from South Sudan, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Burundi and Somalia. For many of these refugees, resettlement is a crucial path to rebuilding their lives. Daniel Arapmoy, CGTN, Nairobi, Kenya. Well, let's get more on that growing refugee crisis and I'm joined by CGTN's Patrick Oyet. He's joining us from Juba. Deji Badmus is in Lagos and Girum Chala is joining us uh, from Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. Uh, Patrick, if I may start off with you, there are currently 4.3 million displaced people from South Sudan, including refugees and IDPs. What has been the major cause of this upset and what is the current status in South Sudan? 
Well, Patrick, we'll return to you in a minute. Deji, let me get your view here because the armed conflict in Nigeria has forced an estimated 2 million people to flee from their homes. What is the situation like now and how is the government dealing with that? northeast of Nigeria. Appreciable progress has been made. Uh, people are being resettled. They have been returned uh, to uh, their, 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 their homes now, I mean their villages and communities, but, but of course you still have problems. There are still problems. Quite a lot of people are still displaced in the northeast of the country, but the state government there, especially in Borno State, uh, which of course uh, has been the epicenter of um, this crisis for the past 10 years, uh, the state government there has made appreciable progress. Uh, of course, you know, uh, the, the level of violence there is gradually coming down, and, uh, and as it comes down, uh, what the state government is doing is to try and resettle people, uh, take them away from IDP camps and uh, resettle them to their original communities. Of course, the situation is uh, still a bit volatile. Uh, it's not completely um, a settled situation there. But Nigeria as a whole, you still have problems elsewhere. For instance, uh, while we're beginning to see um, a reduction in, uh, in the crisis in the Northeast, uh, we're beginning to see uh, you know, an increase in, in Heather's Farmers' crisis, especially uh, clashes now, especially in the middle belt of uh, the country, the middle belt region, where uh, quite a lot of people have been displaced recently as a result of fighting there, uh, especially between Heather's and Farmers. Uh, on the whole, what Ni the Nigerian government is doing is that uh, in 2019, the Nigerian government created uh, the Ministry of Humanitarian, uh, Humanitarian Affairs and uh, Disaster Management. That ministry is actually leading uh, Nigeria's humanitarian efforts now, the quest to resettle people and to provide assistance. Uh, this year alone, that ministry has a budget of about $146 million, and um, the, the ministry is working... Uh, literally all over the place, uh, providing humanitarian assistance and also leading in efforts to resettle people, especially in places where uh, there's a semblance of peace. So uh, that's essentially what the, what, uh, the government is doing. And uh, another commission in the Northeast, for instance, is what is called, right. now called uh, the, the Northeast Development Commission. This year alone, that commission has about $72 million to, to work with. So all of these efforts, uh, the, the government hopes, uh, would help to uh, resettle people and then reduce the number of displaced people, uh, not just in the northeast, but across the country. Patrick in Juba, if you can hear me now, I do want to rephrase my question again because there are currently 4.3 million displaced people from South Sudan, including refugees and IDPs. What is the current situation? And, and up to now, what has been the major cause of the refugee crisis in South Sudan? Yeah, Beatrice, the problem in South Sudan is actually the problem of civil war because uh, uh, civil war broke out in South Sudan in 2013 and this civil war went on for six years and the peace deal was signed in 2018 but even if a peace deal was signed still the implementation of the peace agreement is moving at a very, very slow pace up to now uh, that the government has been formed more than a year ago. The parliament has never uh, uh, started to actually start uh, working, telling you of how 
very many arms of the government are not yet operational and therefore those who are still in the refugee camps are unwilling to come back home because they are not sure of the situation that uh, is in the country. Leave alone that there is also another problem that has come related to climate change where you find most parts, almost half of the country is flooding at the current time. Therefore, it does not provide any incentive for those in the refugee camps to return to their own home. But also talking more about the issue of the peace agreement. Of course, the peace dividend is not there. The soldiers, for example, the opposition forces that were supposed to be joining the government forces and being redeployed together as one government force, these people are still in the training camps. They have not yet come out. So you have very many commanders in chief where uh, the opposition groups still command their own troops. So it, it looks like the peace is not yet on the ground, especially in the villages. So it is not encouraging the people yet to return to their own homes. In, in, in fact, what is happening with the current uh, flooding and so forth is that more people are even being displaced internally within the country. All right, uh, and I'm going to wrap in Chris Ochamringa, joining us there from Kinshasa in DR Congo. Chris, more than 5 million people are internally displaced in DR Congo. Why is the country labelled one of the world's most neglected displacement crises? Yes, Beatrice, first of all, uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo was labeled the world's most display, uh, neglected displacement crisis by uh, the Norwegian Refugee Council. And uh, that's a humanitarian organization that helps people who are living in conflict zones, people who have been displaced. Now, the reason they gave for that description was, first of all, the overwhelming numbers of people who have been displaced. Now, the DRC has, uh, the eastern part of the DRC has a multiple number of conflicts in areas like North Kivu, Ituri, and South Kivu province. There are thousands of people, you know, who have been displaced in those areas. They have uh, very little food, no shelter, and uh, they're not you know, getting the assistance that they need. So the humanitarian agencies said that was the first reason. The second was the lack of funding. There are a multiple number of aid organizations based in Eastern DRC that are trying to help uh, the people displaced in Eastern DRC you know, get the basic necessities, but they've always been making these appeals to the international community, but the money that has been coming in has not been enough. According to a report that was released earlier this year, about half of the money that was requested to support people who have uh, been forced to flee their homes was received, and so that was another reason. The other is also about the lack of media attention, especially in the international uh, media outlets, uh, that these crises in the DRC has not been receiving the same kind of attention that other crises elsewhere in the world has been receiving. Uh, and, and also the, the visits by high-profile officials from some of these uh, big institutions in, in the Western world it hasn't been happening in the DRC. So these are all the reasons that they have given. They're saying the DRC is a country that has, has had conflict for more than two decades, and there seems to be um, a kind of donor fatigue. People seem to have forgotten that the people here in this country still need support. And so the international humanitarian organizations have been appealing to the, 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 the international community and the local people to do more to help the people here who have been displaced uh, from their areas. Beatrice? All right. And Girum, I want to hear from you. I do understand you're in Dubai for the moment. But the crisis unfolding in Ethiopia's Etigre region has seen more than 46,000 people seek refuge in neighboring Sudan and another estimated 1.7 million displaced from their homes. What are the major challenges facing refugees and what is the government in Ethiopia doing to help? Well, Beatrice, uh, 
the fundamental problem the Ethiopian IDPs, especially those in the northern part of the country, are facing with at the moment in insecurity. As you know, the war has continued in different war forms uh, between the Ampara regional state in Tigray and the Afar regional state in Tigray. And uh, by the day, the number of people who are being dispersed from their homes and looking for humanitarian assistance every day is increasing. And that is uh, one problem. This uh, also is an addition to the already existing trouble in those regional states. In the Tigray regional state itself, uh, uh, so many people, even before the war, were under humanitarian services uh, due to the uh, problem of uh, climate and other issues. And now that the war is there, uh, although food is being provided with its own limitations and others by UN and the government, uh, there is also a problem of insecurity. People are fearing for their lives every day as uh, war is also uh, escalating in different parts of the country. The other most important thing, and to answer your second question of what the government is doing, is the government has a dedicated uh, organization called uh, the uh, Disaster Risk Management Commission. The commission is mandated to address humanitarian issues in the country and more particularly provide food and other aid services across the country. And in the northern part of the country, and this is according to the Office of the Prime Minister, uh, in collaboration with the United Nations, food is being provided, uh, trucks, uh, more than uh, perhaps a five, 450 of them have crossed the border. So, so far the government is trying to provide the food relief, but then again, there are limitations, and as long as the war is continuing, uh, people will be continuing to suffer at the same time, Beatrice. All right, uh, Gerum Chala joining us there via Zoom from uh, Dubai. Uh, Chris Ochamringa in Kinshasa, Dejibadmus in Lagos, Nigeria, and Patrick uh, joining us there from Juba to you all. Uh, thank you. Now, this week, Egypt began rolling out its first locally produced COVID-19 vaccine. The job is called Vastera Sinovac, carrying the name of the two manufacturers that collaborated in the production. China is supporting Egypt with a team of scientists to fully transfer the vaccine production technology. Shezad El Mahroui with more details. After getting the green light from the Egyptian Drug Authority on August 23, Vaxera Sinovac COVID-19 vaccine is officially available this week in Egypt. Health Ministry officials announced receiving the first 1 million doses of the jab. These are among the first Egyptians nationwide to get the new vaccine. I wasn't concerned at all. I know a lot of people who have taken the Chinese vaccines, and the reputation of the vaccines here is good. The government is widely publicizing this new vaccine, which shows its confidence in it. These millions of vaccines produced locally will help us go back to the normal life we know. I'm the first person I know to take this kind of vaccine, so that made me worry a bit. There were doctors here, however, who patiently listened to all my questions. They have addressed all my concerns, and I felt comfortable taking it. I believe it's much better to have domestically manufactured vaccine. We save time, foreign currency, and solve the availability of the vaccine. This is the product of the first Chinese vaccine manufacturing collaboration in Africa. Egypt says it has the capacity to produce up to 18 million doses monthly. This will comfortably cover domestic needs and fill the high vaccine gap demand in Africa. 
Some people were concerned about getting vaccinated in general. That's not the case anymore. Even those who feared a shortage in supply may affect their second dosage, they are now confident the Egyptian Sinovac vaccine will be both effective and available. Rolling out Egypt's first domestically produced COVID-19 vaccine comes at a time the country needs it the most. Cairo took a decision to inoculate some 5.5 million government and education employees in just one month. That's in addition to the ongoing vaccination campaign. 10 million Egyptians registered to get the jab. Of those, 8 million got at least one dose. 2.9 million residents have been fully vaccinated so far. Adel Mahroui, CGTN. In Algeria, the World Health Organization said Infections continue to surge, I beg your pardon. Infections continue to surge in the United States even as more people get vaccinated. John Hopkins' latest figures show 2,700 new deaths and over 247,000 new infections in the United States as of August 27th. Several states are reporting record numbers of patients in hospitals. Nick Harper reports from Washington. Well, the Delta variant is rampaging across the United States. Alabama is one state that is really struggling, saying that quite simply they have run out of room for bodies. They've brought in a few mobile refrigeration units to put the people who are dying as a result of COVID-19, but they're still struggling. And we're seeing that really across the majority of the southern states in the United States. Uh, over the course of the last week, in particular, deaths from the Delta variant have increased dramatically. 14 states have seen a 50% increase. 28 other states have seen an increase of around 10%. Uh, Alabama is also one of the states that's seeing a rise of cases among children, something that we hadn't seen uh, until recently with the Delta variant surging. Now, on top of that, we've had a study from the Lancet Infectious Disease Journal that looked particularly at how dangerous this Delta variant is. We already know that it's more transmissible, but they found in this study, looking at 40,000 cases, that people are twice as likely to be hospitalized if they get the Delta variant. And they said as a result of this, their conclusion was, that it's very important for people to get vaccinated because if they don't, they're more likely to be hospitalized and that in turn will overwhelm hospital situations like we've seen uh, in Alabama. They said uh, it can lead to a higher burden on hospitals and healthcare if people don't get vaccinated. Well, to try and deal with the rising cases of the Delta variant across the US, the Biden administration is now looking at the possibility of introducing booster shots for people sooner than planned. The original date was eight months after a second dose was given. They're now suggesting, comments from President Biden, that it could be as early as five months after that second dose. Uh, boosters are due to start in the third week of September. Uh, the Biden administration making it very clear that they are worried as we head towards winter that we will see an increase of Delta variant cases of COVID-19 in the United States. You're watching Africa Live, still ahead on the programme. South Africa to get more droughts, sliding and fires as climate change bites. And Libyans yearn for an end to daily power blackout. Africa is a continent of diversity with varied climates and enchanting geography and a people so distinct 
but with a shared enduring spirit. We are at the heart of the continent to bring you the untold stories. Let's have a look. We celebrate Africa as it shapes its own destiny. Africa Live. Find your voice. South Africa now. The country can expect increasing droughts, more flooding and even fire weather conditions as climate change continues to take hold of the region. As according to the latest UN report on the physical science basis of climate change. According to the report, adverse climatic conditions are expected to negatively affect the planet and some countries are already experiencing it. CGTN's Travers Andrews has more. The new UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report paints a very sobering picture on the current health of the planet. The report indicates global warming is more widespread and is intensifying and will become more severe unless urgent action is taken. Southern Africa is particularly in the firing line and can expect increasing intensity in adverse climatic conditions. The report finds it's also likely to become generally drier with more frequent drought. And you see, when a region that is naturally dry and warm becomes drastically warmer with more droughts and drier on the average, there is very little one can do in terms of adaptation. So this region is limited in terms of its options to adapt to climate change. Experts say the recent drought in the Western Cape has already shown the extent to which the climate is changing. The region can also expect more runaway bushfires and floods which threatens food security and may trigger the displacement of communities. Cyclones are also another area of concern, as evidence point to this also becoming a problematic weather phenomenon for South Africa in the future. Maybe for the first time in the historical record, Maputo in southern Mozambique, the capital, is vulnerable to the occurrence of these absolutely devastating um, cyclones, types of cyclones. Now, even South Africa in the northeast, the Limpopo province of South Africa, the Mpumalanga province, all along the eastern escarpment, and even in our KwaZulu-Natal province further to the south, a, a, a critical harbor city like Richards Bay, is now suddenly vulnerable to the occurrence of these intense tropical cyclones. South Africa's vulnerability to climate change makes the region particularly reliant on a global commitment to reduce global warming. Now, the future threat of severe drought remains one of the biggest areas of concern, as this has the potential to cause widespread damage to the economy and the country. That was Andrew CGTN, Cape Town. Military commanders of the African Union mission in Somalia have agreed to speed up the implementation of joint operations with the Somalia National Army. The joint operations are meant to prepare the Somalia National Army to take over security responsibilities ahead of the end of AMISOM's mandate in December. UGTN's Daniel Arapmoy reports. The African Union mission in Somalia and the Somali security forces have pledged to intensify joint military operations. 
As part of their strategy, AMISOM has set up mobile and quick reaction forces within their areas of operations. This, they say, will help in countering the threat posed by Al-Shabaab militants. I personally appreciate the enduring work you do in the sectors for the sake of peace and stability of this great country, Somalia. However, there is a need to generate a joint AMISOM, SNA, realistic, walkable, and a fixed CONOPS which calls for an appropriate threat assessment and an honest assessment of the friendly forces. Amisom commanders say Somali needs trained forces capable of holding liberated territories. While Al-Shabaab remains a threat in Somalia, Amisom says progress has been made. Our mandate, sir, is to degrade Al-Shabaab, which we have done since we came into Somalia, we have secured population centers and we continue to secure these population centers, give normalcy to those population centers for the Somali people to undertake their day-to-day -day activities uh, without fear. The commanders resolved to continue to help strengthen the Somali National Army and protect the civilian population. Meanwhile, the African Union and the Somali government have been discussing what Amisom's involvement may look like beyond the end of its mandate on December 31st. Daniel Arabmoy, CGTN, Nairobi, Kenya. As a major oil exporter, Libya once had a strong electricity network. But years of conflict have destroyed much of the country's infrastructure and weakened many state institutions. Many Libyans face long hours of power blackouts which have affected their daily life and businesses. CGTN's Nokutula Shabalala has more. Walk down any commercial street in the Libyan capital, Tripoli. Generators lining the pavements have become an all-too-familiar sight in the city. The generators are ready to spring into action whenever there are power blackouts. I am tired of the power cuts. I don't get any help from the government. We are tired of the power cuts. Mothers, fathers, families, everyone is tired. We are living in a big prison. On most days, residents of Tripoli can expect multiple outages. Much to the citizens' frustrations, the power outages can last as long as 12 hours, affecting their daily life and business. Temperatures in Tripoli regularly reach 40 degrees Celsius, especially in the summer. We are suffering due to the power cuts in the country. Most of the goods and products we sell require refrigeration, which requires electricity. The chicken and ice cream are going bad because of lack of electricity. The power cuts are affecting us on a psychological level now. Basic generators sell for around $470, but more reliable models cost thousands. Keeping the generators fueled up has become a daily chore for many. Some worry that the hum of the generators and the diesel fumes could cause health problems.
This crisis has lasted for 10 years, and we are now in the 11th year. It has a great impact on our lives. After the 2011 revolution, Libya has had repeated outbreaks of fighting. This has caused heavy damage to the country's power distribution network. Libya has not had any new investment in electricity generation in recent years. This crisis has been going on for 10 years in Libya. Nothing has changed. The promises made by successive governments have not been kept. Two new power stations are under construction by a German-Turkish consortium in Tripoli and in Libya's third city of Misrata. They are expected to add 1,300 megawatts of capacity to the grid in the first quarter of next year. Noktula Shabalala, CGTN. Some stormy news now. And before heading to the U.S., Ida slammed into Cuba on Friday, toppling trees and damaging homes. Those Chirino reports from Havana. Hurricane Ida made landfall Friday afternoon on Cuba's Isle of Youth, battering the western part of the country. On Saturday, preliminary reports say Hurricane Ida's impact on the island left fallen trees and damaged home roofs. Local media reports also say the storm caused damage to agricultural crops and the national grid in the province of Pinal de Rio, leaving people without electricity. Thousands of people were evacuated from low-lying areas to save shelters. So far, no casualties were reported on the island. On the Isle of Youth, the storm left a trail of fallen trees, as well as in Pinar del Rio and Artemisa provinces, while in Havana, rain and wind gusts left some damage in the power and water supply systems. The strong hurricane hit the island just as Cuban citizens are under COVID-19 restrictive measures, so crucial medical supplies were transferred from warehouses to hospitals ahead of the storm. Health centers were not damaged by the storm, according to local media reports. Hurricane Ida left the island late Friday and headed to the Gulf of Mexico. Meanwhile, on Saturday, Cubans began recovery efforts, assessing and cleaning the damage left by the storm. Luis Chirino, CGTN, Havana. And your business news coming up next. Here's what's ahead. Innovations and online services support $6 billion worth of trade in Ethiopia. And South African Airways set to resume operations from the 23rd of September. The best of Mother Nature near the heart of Mother Africa. The scenery and allures of Victoria Falls where the sun rays kiss the sprinkles of magnificent waters cascading upon the rocks. The wonders of Kenya's Masai Mara where the world comes to feast upon the beauty of the beach. The Lake Nakuru in Kenya, where flamingos come in the millions to rest their wings. Catch it here on our special series on Africa's famous national park.
Ethiopia has said the value of its e-commerce market reached over $6 billion in the past financial year. The growth has mainly been spurred by innovations that have managed to easily tap into a ready market for online services. The country's potential is, however, held back by several factors, including a lack of trust in the cashless system by some citizens. CGTN's Coletta Wanjohi reports from Addis Ababa. Malek Fekade has just received a package that she ordered for online. Shaga is very convenient for me. I can get on things from online and I can get it delivered here where I am. Malet used Shaga, one of the many platforms that have come up to tap into Ethiopia's e-commerce market. Its manager, Chris Rumenda, has had vast experience from neighboring Kenya, which has one of the largest e-commerce industries. In Africa. If an investor is patient, Ethiopia is even more right than Kenya in terms of everything. Because looking at, like their vendors are quite organized. Locations, infrastructure and everything is very organized. Like regulation and everything is very clear, even if it's not there. But when it's there, it's very clear. So this is something that will make it easy for everyone. In just a year, the platform which targets mostly small enterprises has registered over 7,000 sellers with over 10,000 products. There is e-commerce in Ethiopia at a growth scale, but kind of informal. So a lot of Ethiopians are buying things on Telegram. So for us, what we are doing is just shifting them from Telegram into a formalized e-commerce system. And if you use that type of people, they actually adopt it easier because it's easier to trust a platform that is known than buying directly from an individual. The government of Ethiopia is looking to these digital platforms to create jobs. Ethiopia's Job Commission says over 2 million people enter the job market annually. No government agency is supposed to create job creation, to create jobs, right? It's supposed to create opportunities right? and create the level playing field, etc., etc. Um, but technology, number one, gives you that inflection point, right? And it gives you that accelerating factor. Consistent internet supply remains a challenge, and the lack of it in rural areas makes these e-platforms only available in urban areas. But with the opening up of the country's telecom sector, there is hope. A consortium led by Kenya's telecom giant Safaricom is already setting operations here, and a separate sale of about 40% of Ethiopia's telecom company, Ethio Telecom, is underway. A digitization proclamation passed by the parliament recently targets to open up support to ensure innovations prosper to sustainable businesses. And Shega is looking at tapping into this opportunity to expand to have specific e-services targeting women entrepreneurs and farmers. Coletta Njohi, CGTN, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Grounded National Airlines South African Airways has confirmed that it will be back in the skies, servicing the Johannesburg-Cape Town route in five continental African destinations from September the 23rd. Angelo Coppola has the story. SAA has been grounded since March last year, when the country went into a COVID-19 hard lockdown. The announcement comes ahead of the completion of a due diligence of the airline by a prospective buyer, the Tekatsu Consortium. Before the due diligence was completed, it seemed particularly inexplicable that they were going to paint themselves into a corner by announcing a start date. Because um, if they're then compelled to start, essentially they're using a lot of global airlines resources, which is part of the um, Tekatsu Consortium, um, then they would the, the consortium would probably be able to pretty much dictate the terms of the uh, strategic equity partnership. Some questions have been raised about SAA entering the highly competitive passenger segment when initial indications were that they would restart operations in the cargo sector first. 
we've now got Comair back in the market with its BA and Kalula brands. So there's enormous oversupply in the in the domestic passenger market and even in the regional market, with uh, Airlink having stepped in and eaten up a lot of the uh, routes that were being operated by SA Express and will now uh, be operated by SAA. The only routes that may work for SAA would seem to be the Accra route and the uh, Kinshasa route, uh, as they don't have immediate competition on those. Concerns have been raised about the airline's current business plan developed by the business rescue practitioners. And honestly, the, the, the numbers are appalling. The original business rescue plan was completely um, unrealistic when it was calling for a break-even with loads in the order of 60%. Now, no airline really can survive with 60% loads these days. You need to be looking at 70% as a minimum, more commonly 75%. The new numbers are indicating that the business plan is, in fact, suggesting a, um, a 25% load factor. And, and that just means that the airline is going to be hemorrhaging cash at, a, at, a, at an absolutely extraordinary rate. It's been a long time coming, but SAA is finally going to get off the ground and hopefully it will be sustainable and stay off the ground. I'm Angelo Coppola for CGTN in Johannesburg, South Africa. Tunisia's inflation rate rose to 6.4% in July from 5.7% last month and 5% in the two months before. The country's statistics agency attributes... Welcome back. And uh, that was... Uh reports uh, from various geopolitical regions around the world, uh, heavy emphasis on the African continent uh, from uh, CGTN, and uh, that's going to uh, conclude the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast for uh, Sunday, August the 29th, 2021. We've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and uh, let's thank all of our listeners for uh, tuning in uh, once again uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. Uh, you can go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal to uh, access this program again, along with uh, over 1,000 other archived editions of the Pan-African Journal. You can also read the Pan-African Newswire at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to be closing out uh, with uh, Barry Harris and Sonny Stitt uh, from the album entitled Tune Up. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.